0: My grandparents, they used to always say, you can't be good at everything. Either you're good at science or you're good at social science. Also, they used to say you can't be the best at everything. And it turns out that neither of those statements are true. What I realized very early is that we really want to put humans in a box so that we understand them. But we create these artificial groupings that can make people feel different or odd, and that's not very productive. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly.
1: Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Josefina Yot. Now, Sarah has spent the past six years creating analog and digital social learning experiences with groundbreaking results. She's the co-founder and CEO of a first-of-its-kind learning experience platform, Canopy Lab. In 2019, she actually invented the first AI course authoring tool. She's also been selected for Barack Obama's Leaders in Europe program in 2022, as well as being advisory board for the United Nations and many non-for-profits around humanity action in Denmark and advisory board members for the Denmark Digital Hub. I know her as a colleague from Singularity University, where she's also faculty and focuses on the future of learning. On this show, I'm delighted to have her come and share her experiences about the mix of policy, diplomacy, AI and learning all together to create her own experience and entrepreneurial journey. It's a fascinating story and a fascinating individual. Let's see how it all got started for her.
0: I came back to Denmark in about. 2009, just sort of not the cooling of the financial crisis, but still not at the height of the crisis. And when I came home, there was an NGO called the United World College that found out I was home. And they had sent me to America originally and paid for it. And then they came to collect, meaning that they wanted me to volunteer to select the new students for scholarships. And that was a quite substantial work. It involved screening applications, giving feedback on application questions, calling them for interviews, but also two whole weekends where they had designed tests and learning experiences for the students to evaluate their academic level, but also their robustness. So imagine I was sent to the U.S. in, I think, 2002, and back then it wasn't pre-internet but internet wasn't available for everybody so if you send a teenager to the other side of the earth robustness is as important quality as your sort of academic track record
2: yeah so they absolutely. designed
0: these yeah. whole experiments and then they asked me to come in and volunteer my time and in those weekends there were things that took place different types of activities that were designed to showcase the students qualities so it ranged from role playing exercises to debate, to building paper towers together and competing against each other, to really sort of shed light on their character and various aspects of their personality. I remember telling my husband, oh no, now I can't say no, I'm gonna have to do it. And then all of a sudden I ended up spending pretty much 10 years volunteering with them, then taking over as country lead for the voluntary organization, but also working with consultants to completely redesign and rethink the kinds of questions and activities we carried out with the students. So pretty early on, I was very fascinated with how we design learning and create learning experiments, but also set up situations where students feel that they succeed and have a fair chance to show what their strengths and qualities are. At that time, I didn't know that that would be such a defining thing for my career. It was something I sort of did on the side while I was pursuing my actual career plan, but it's just stuck with me and it ended up being something I look forward to very much every year. And then I ended up spending most of my career working in now.
1: I love that you sort of jokingly say they came to collect. Fantastic. But it sounds like this is the ideal scenario that even when people envisage those types of programs, that something like that could happen, where they invest in someone like yourself, you have a great experience, great opportunity. Then, for it to sort of come back full circle and you to have a chance to not only help other people through that program, as you say, but also then suddenly become a creator of that program and build upon it. What were some of the pieces as you started to unpick apart creating these experiences, because we often hear of all sorts of development programs. It could be a corporate one where you're sent on a leadership development program for three months and make exposure. You learn how to do feedback or lead teams or whatever it might be. Or you know, you've even gone on to experience at a global level, working with the Obama Foundation to be part of these amazing type programs. And some of them can really deliver and have great outcomes. And some of them can be sort of a waste of time. We've seen people being very frustrated, actually. So you have this unique experience that you lived through one. Then you got to design one. What were some of the things you had to sort of unlearn, if you will, about flipping it around and then starting to create these experiences for people. Cause it sounds like it started for you to sort of pay it forward. And then it suddenly turned into something more than that. What was that pursuit of curiosity too, as well, as you were going up to build these programs?
0: When I was a kid, my grandparents, they used to always say, you can't be good at everything. Either you're good at science or you're good at social science. Also, they used to say, you can't be the best at everything. And it turns out that neither of those statements are true. What I realized very early is that we really want to put humans in a box so that we understand them, that we want to create... Yeah,
1: categorize.
2: Yeah. Yes.
0: But we create these artificial groupings that can make people feel different or odd, and that's not very productive. Well, United World College, we were set out to design evaluation situations with the premise that people are different and we want them to shine. And if people are different and encompass different talents and we want to put together versatile, diverse groups who empower each other to do exciting things, then we weren't looking for a specific group and you couldn't go into that situation with an assumption that if you're good at math, you don't know how to play an instrument or something else that's totally ridiculous. So I think that's really sort of shaped my thinking and then also witnessing that People who have one experience that's a success are likely to then be successful in more subjects as well, because they build on that success. To share a personal example, I went to a partially English speaking school almost my entire life. And that meant that when I started high school, my English was better than pretty much everyone else. That makes sense because it was already a big part of my life. And then you already have one subject where you're a success and you don't have to focus much energy there. Self-esteem comes from that situation. And that makes it easier to thrive in the next subject. So again, this idea that you can't be the best at everything, actually, the more you master, the easier it becomes for you to master even more. And the further we get in our careers, we realize that every subject is inherently interconnected and not like math is related to music, which is related to social science and history and culture, etc. So in a way, I always wanted to defy these types. Like they always challenged me. And I said, well, actually you can do that. Another thing they used to tell me is don't voice political opinion. I said, well, why not? Because you can't take it back. Once you've said something, it'll be out there forever. If you change your mind, you'll look ridiculous. And I thought, well, that doesn't quite make sense. Because in a world where we continue to learn, you have to change your opinion sometimes because or else you're showing that you have no progress, that you're not taking things in, that you're not reevaluating your position. And I don't think that can be a position of strength. Never changing your mind will tell me that you're stubborn or that you're too proud to admit that you made a mistake. Those are things that have really sort of influenced me. And then in my life, there have been these moments where I've realized that I've done something in a totally, totally wrong way. And I think that in my more adult life, in my 30s, I haven't seen that as something to be stressed out about or not be proud of. In my 20s, especially being an entrepreneur, it was much more about saying, I know this, I've done this, make everything look great. You have to look great. The company has to look great. It has to be on the glossiest piece of paper and the shiniest website. And then that was somehow how we showed strength. And I feel a little bit sad because when I see some of the younger generations on Instagram, they still think a large part of showing strength is looking perfect. Whereas some are starting to get that authenticity and sharing when you're not feeling good. Actually, creates much more engagement and excitement around you as a person and as a brand.
1: That's so true. That point especially resonates a lot. One of the things we figured out in our venture studio is a lot of the folks have been entrepreneurs many times like yourself. For me, that was a really hard lesson too to learn as well, where I always thought you had to present perfect, have to have all the answers. Have to almost preempt the next question that was going to come with people, so you look so polished and turned out. But the stress and anxiety that you put on yourself to try and then always be perfect in that scenario is almost like it's debilitating at some level, where one of the huge breakthroughs I certainly learned as an entrepreneur and spend a lot of time actually trying to encourage other people to do it is just be real, be authentic, say, this thing's working, this thing's not working actually here's where we're not strong as a team here's where we need help and then you actually start to attract the right type of people that you need to either fill gaps or be part of a journey with you rather than trying to always present perfect and then you end up with a mismatch in some respects so you've built these great programs to help people but you've also built a bunch of businesses yourself as an entrepreneur so What were some of your other unlearning moments as you went through that process?
0: One of the most significant unlearning moments was in my career. So I lived in the U.S. a long time and came back during the financial crisis because my family went bankrupt and I had to come home. And there I was very angry. I felt like I had a perfect life in Washington, D.C., a beautiful apartment with a swimming pool. And who wants to leave that and start making your own money, right? But that moment, it taught me to never be financially dependent on someone else, which I think, especially as a woman, but for anyone in general, it's really, really important. Money is not important for the sake of money, but the freedom it gives you. And it doesn't have to be a lot of money, but enough for you to be able to make some decisions and for you to not to depend on other people, whether it's a spouse or your family. So money brings leverage. But also this understanding that I think the years before that, I hadn't really depended on myself to shape my own luck and to set the path. So it was really important to come home and realize wherever I go now, that's a decision that I have to make. And I have to make that money and I'm in charge of myself. That was very empowering. What yeah. did involve some sort of anger in the beginning? The second moment was when I realized I didn't want to be a diplomat. I had pursued that my whole life. I had done things that were completely ridiculous, like study Russian in evening school. <laughs> if you speak intermediate Russian, that's not super useful. We can agree if you're fluent in Russian, that's useful, but that's not super useful. So I had really like devoted my career and my whole life to pursue this one goal. And then when I was living in St. Petersburg, I realized I don't want to do this. It felt like such a failure at the time and a crisis of identity had this one thing. I know where I'm going. I set out a path. I have communicated this path. This is my life goal. Everyone knows. They look at me and say, Sarah, she wants to be a career diplomat. That was it. She wants to be an ambassador. And then I didn't like it. I didn't like how we worked. I didn't like the hierarchy. I didn't like the bureaucracy. At times today, where we're seeing the conflict with Israel and Gaza, one needs to question how effective international diplomacy really is. But the point is that At the time, I perceived it as a failure. And then all of a sudden, I realized, how is this a failure? I set out to do something. I did it. And I don't like it. It's not like, you know, I'm being asked to not work here or I'm not good enough. I don't like the work that I'm doing. And I am the person in charge of my own life. So I have to figure out what I like to do. I've always been fascinated with international politics. I've watched and read everything that's happening out there, but I didn't like to spend my life doing the work. So it felt kind of like I was closing the door on my entire education. And then I thought I wouldn't be using those skills again, but I pretty fast sort of sensed like now I have to begin exploring. I have to do something new that's unfamiliar to me. I'm a little bit of a control freak. So I have to test different things, taste different things and figure out what it is that I want to do, but I can't, you know, I was like 24 or something. I was like, I'm too young to spend the rest of my life doing something that doesn't make me happy. I think I also mistakenly thought that those skills that I had honed during that time period wouldn't be used for something else. But I end up today, I would say I work at the intersection of artificial intelligence, education, but also human rights and policy. I'm hugely involved in a lot of very political things. I'm sort of surprised at how many times I'm actually now in a room with a diplomat or with an ambassador, (laughs) Be what I think about something. So it's kind of like you come full circle. But that's also what I mean, that things are connected. Working in artificial intelligence and education, that's hugely related to policy. And there are very few people that understand how to shape policy and how policies have been built historically and understand the technical field. So I kind of consider myself lucky being in a niche today where not a lot of people are.
1: Yeah. It's a great reminder, and there's so many great points to unpack there. One that certainly stands out is this ability to have independence and support and back yourself to be able to do what you want. That is a great mindset to even develop. And most people, it's very hard to build that until you've experienced the situation that you describe. Sometimes you might hear entrepreneurs who've had a fortune and lost it, or there's a crisis moment where you have to sort of evaluate where you are and then how you want to take ownership of the things that happen to you next. It's lovely to hear people share those sort of stories. But the other thing that sort of is paired fascinating with that as you're sharing is this notion of sort of getting to a conclusion or you gather the information from the context that you were in and then we're like, oh, right. Now I've learned this mightn't be what I want to dedicate the rest of my energy, time, focus on, or maybe there's a different version of it that I might be able to take all these lessons, this experience that I've created from the opportunity I've been part of and then refocus it somewhere else. I hear that a lot with so many people who definitely write into the show or afterwards who are always like, I'd love to change my career. I'd love to take that risk, but they struggle to take the first step. So it's always great to hear folks like yourself recognize that you're sort of stacking these experiences, if you will, over time to become the best version of yourself and focusing it in these directions that, as you say, you found this sort of micro niche, if you will, where there's very few people in the world who have your ability to understand policy, diplomacy, technology with AI. And that is such a conversation of the moment on how are we going to Handle this technology as we apply it in social circumstances and business contexts. Again, it just struck me how committed you are to focusing on using your skills for the better. So, you took this mindset and you also have started to put it into companies as well. Tell us a little bit about how you started Canopy Lab and what sort of brought that together because it's a fascinating juncture of technology and education and learning and also meeting people where they're at rather than trying to categorize them for the sake of simplicity, if you will, and the education system point of view, but you're really optimizing for the person. What were some of the things you had to learn and unlearn as you went through that process as well?
0: Before that, I'm just going to make one comment about something you said. One thing I thought about is when I was younger, someone once told me that some of the most successful people and some of the most financially successful people in the world are those that aren't sentimental and that make very logic decisions. That's a principle I would really try to apply in my life. So as you mentioned, you know, some entrepreneurs create businesses that go bankrupt. Some have a lot of money, lose a lot of money. But those that continue to succeed over time are those who constantly reevaluate the situation and make very tough decisions about businesses, about like, I'm not sentimental about my business. I'm not sentimental about my car or my house. They are assets. I might love them and spend a lot of energy on them, but that doesn't mean that one couldn't be converted into something else or one could be sold or you have to take a very pragmatic approach and you have to separate this ego from the situation you're working in. So I am not my business. I'm not my car. I'm not my house. I'm not the clothes that I'm wearing. They are part of the story I'm telling at the moment, but that might change. And I think that's something that's really, really important. You see entrepreneurs go bankrupt with companies after 15 years that should have gone bankrupt after two years because they're too sentimental to see they don't have a product market fit. Or they are too embarrassed to understand that there is no successful entrepreneur who hasn't made a couple of things that didn't work out. I view my CV or my experiences as like, I'm stacking like a memory card in a way. And in order to do that successfully, I have a lot of stuff on there from my education, from working with diplomacy and human rights, but I try to really stack it with new stuff. So another thing I've been doing is playing a lot of games with my kids. And that's a fairly recent thing for me to be gaming. And it's not because I inherently am interested in gaming. I'm not a gamer. Like an anthropologist, I like to understand how it's set up and the structure and how it works, but it's taught me a totally new vocabulary. And appreciation and love of gaming as an industry and wanting to work in that industry. So I think that's a really, to not be sentimental, to make logical assessments. The start of a year is a good time to go in and reassess. Just as you look and you renegotiate your loans, renegotiate your life. Am I doing the things I want to be doing at this time? And then in terms of just like everything with Canopy Lab, there wasn't like this one moment. I think ideas really sort of grew over time. There were a lot of things that came together. I was in this sort of phase of figuring out what I wanted to do. When I came home from Russia, I worked in a management consulting and engineering company. And that really shaped me for about a year and a half in terms of there were some software projects, but also this sort of toolbox and the desire to create things from scratch that became like a need I didn't know I had. And I was also very inspired by my husband, who's a software developer. He was a creator and when you want to be a diplomat, or even if you work within research or management consulting, you're not a creator. You don't view creation as a core part of your identity. You are a researcher, or you are a disseminator? Like you don't create, but I realized that perhaps I could also create something from scratch, something that didn't exist before. I found that very fascinating. And then I accepted an offer to start a PhD position which was originally focusing on migrants, but then I quickly got it shifted to focus on migrants' use of social media and different technologies and platforms. And then the company grew out of that, grew out of me being inspired by some of the things that my husband was building. As a part of the PhD research, I did a lot of tests. I analyzed online forums and communication, but I also started my own YouTube channel and Canopy Lab together with United World College also brought 30 or 40 young students to a small island in Denmark and taught them social entrepreneurship. So that really shaped my thinking that I wanted to start a learning company that helps empower people, especially young people to realize their potential. And then a sort of a couple of things where I think we were really good at capturing the sort of zeitgeist. We realized back then, I mean, this is eight years ago that Structuring a learning platform like a social media was a good idea because our users would migrate to other platforms and have a lot of bilateral conversations. We saw that all research indicates that people learn more when they learn together. Learning is all social exercise. Chris got that idea and that really boosted our engagement. And then pretty fast, we started talking about the use of artificial intelligence for personalization purposes and for the auto-generation of synthetic content. And back then, there wasn't really a vocabulary for what we wanted to do. But through listening to and being curious about the conversation happening in tech and in other places, I saw very clearly the move towards synthetic content creation. Then we got some public funds to be able to be one of the first companies in Denmark that were pursuing how to build algorithms for synthetic content creation. And that was a very exciting and a very defining moment for us.
1: It's an amazing story. I just really enjoy hearing people's twists and turns on their path. You especially, because you're building an education company, but also like learning your way into finding what that company is. I love when things sort of resonate and rhyme. Such a great example of that. So when we met at Singularity University, it's a fantastic hub for very interesting characters, always sort of technology forward thinking people about how it might impact their business. And. You're obviously one of the faculty there too, as well, but deep in this space of learning and helping people understand the future of learning too, as well. And I was instantly struck as you were describing how you had built the business and its purpose and the way that it was adaptive and thinking about how you can personalize to individual, but also learning in group context. These sort of patterns, I think most people, probably some of them haven't even seen them yet, or some people are probably starting to see those emerge. What have been some of the big surprises for you that as you were building the business, that sort of were like, wow, we couldn't believe that happened. As you were integrating this social context, I love that you started making videos on YouTube and used that to sort of inform what you were doing too, as well. Like the experimentation's been fascinating. So, can you share some of the experiments for you that have been like ahas or ones that you were like, oh my God, that sort of went totally different than I expected?
0: Sure. I think it's Reed Hoffman who did the episode with Airbnb about like, the five-star Airbnb experience, but one of their conclusions in that episode, whoever made it, was that you have to do things that don't scale in order to find out what scales and what scale scales well, and to find sort of your super fan or your super user and really understand why they're obsessed with your product and then try to make more of them. For us, YouTube was kind of a part of that experiment. In the beginning, we knew that Young people were engaging with NGOs and that they were looking for something. The segment that we work with, they're quite academically secure. They were looking for other experiences to meet other people. Some of them, we knew they felt sometimes a little bit alone at their school. Perhaps they were the only person who cared about Black Lives Matter or the only person who wanted to create the recycling club. So they were seeking communities of like-minded peers and they're curious about the world. We knew we needed to get to know them better. And we also never had envisioned a product from the beginning, like this is what it's going to look like. We were very sort of explorative in that process. When you do a PhD, you have to also teach. I was required to teach quite a few hours. So then I figured it's not a lot harder to just also teach that online and see how people are engaging with the content. And then what we realized pretty quickly is that one, they're searching for something slightly different. I always felt kind of like a fake at university teaching something I didn't know about. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm Pages ahead of these guys in the book. They don't want to know about that. They want to know about the stuff I really know about. And they want to hear it from other people. Again, like if it's a migrant crisis, you don't want to just hear about the dude who made the immigration policy or me who's interpreting it from the book. You want to hear from the migrants. You want to hear from the aid yeah, workers.
2: You want to hear right from on. the
0: whole chain of people. The first idea was to, again, say, let's change. Who is speaking? Who is an authority? Who do we want to hear from? We want to hear from someone else. Quickly, we saw like, it's not scalable that I'm teaching. Then we switched based on the feedback to having other people teach who are practitioners. And then finally, we realized that the intervention we wanted to make was to fundamentally change how people learn. And to again, sort of leading back to United World College, allowing them to shine requires different modalities because they learn in different ways. So we realized, actually, we have to become a software company. That wasn't clear yeah. from the beginning. It was always yeah. clear that we were in education, but it wasn't so clear. I would say today we're much more an AI in AI and education, like a software company, than we're actually an actual educational company. Having sort of that curiosity along the way is incredibly important. Not pretend that you have the answers. Obviously, there are things that I've learned along the way, like as a leader. One of them is we touched upon in the beginning, this whole like, thing about being perfect. When COVID happened, the uptake we had in users was so fast that some things just didn't work. It's not a big scandal. You have to open more servers. We weren't used to having thousands of people on the login page at the same time. Or even some of the AI where we generate synthetic content text. It just wasn't geared for having so many people do it at the same time. So it didn't work. I thought that was, again, like, that's such a failure. That's such an embarrassment. No, it isn't. It's a part of a scaling story and it's something to say out loud. No one ever told me, Sarah, if you more than quadruple your user base in a couple of weeks, have you thought about like how you're scaling out your servers and stuff? Things happen really, really fast. That's a story that needs to be shared. And I realized that when we started sharing that story, that people resonate with us much more. Another thing, generally, the way that we socialize people as entrepreneurs is like fundamentally flawed. I call it. The pause clown show here. We make the <laughs> floor stand on a stage and give them three minutes to tell us how amazing they are. And then sometimes we give them money afterwards. It's like almost degrading. It's completely ridiculous. I refuse to participate in that. How do you want to judge the merit of a business based on that? And my problem is like, I'm very competitive and I'm very good at pitching, but like, it doesn't actually make sense. Does it help my business to stand on some stupid stage and like go on and on about how amazing we are? Most of the time it doesn't. So a part of that socialization of the CEO, of the founder, of creating these cult figures, it also puts us in some sort of prison in a way.
2: Yeah, I agree. Because we're
0: supposed to be perfect. We're supposed to not be sick, not be sad, not have doubts, not ask for help, because we're the guiding star. I had one investor once told me, Sarah, we kind of see you as a cult leader, be a cult leader. There's a lot of problems associated with that. A lot of times something that I struggle with is for example, I had a very, very large knee surgery and I was on a lot of medication and I felt I had to go back to work really fast because I have to signal to the company, you guys are fine. It was still at that stage where it's a little hard for them to survive without me. That's not where we're at anymore. So I tried to come back really, really fast. And I wasn't ready. There's some pictures, even I participated in a public panel where I was completely yellow in the skin because I'm on so much medication. I had to just sort of like stop taking because I didn't want to take morphine on stage and say something completely ridiculous. But then I noticed that our employees stopped calling out sick afterwards and thought, that's kind of strange. It's not like Why is there this dramatic change in the data about people being sick? Then I realized I send a signal that you can't be sick. People look to me, people look to my behavior, and they model my behavior. And my behavior was, even though you're feeling really, really, really sick, you always put the company first. You always show up. You always pretend that you're okay when you're not okay. So one of the only good things that have come out of COVID is that we realize now that when you're sick, have to stay at home especially if you're sick with something that could affect other people it's actually really selfish to go to work before it was the opposite it was no. like i'm in to work you're super selfish your colleagues have to do all this extra stuff that you're putting on them because you're staying out like how sick are you really so i think that there's been a shift around that that's really important
1: one thing that i'm enjoying listening to you share it's almost like the archetype we've tried to create of great entrepreneurs and how counterintuitive kind of it actually is. One of the things I enjoy most about the studio is that we call it Nobody Studios, where it's a collection of apparent somebodies that work there. One of the things I think that has helped me most, too, about any entrepreneurial journey and always is just sharing the truth. When things are going good, when things are going bad, how to deal with hard situations, because... That's what it is. Every day is just a series of problems that show up and which ones can you solve and which ones can you not solve. And it takes a huge amount of energy, a lot of hard decisions, and it's tough and lonely. People would never have thought about talking about that because as you say, often the Silicon mantra is I woke up one morning, I went for a jog, tripped over a stone and suddenly I started Airbnb and it's a billion dollar company. And you can do it too if you wake up at 5am and go to the gym like I do and Work 14 hour days. It's BS. That's sort of a wrong expectation to set for people because they will role model it when they don't know.
0: I also think that when we place so much emphasis on the entrepreneur, first of all, we know that the most successful entrepreneur is not a young man in his 30s, even though they're the ones getting the capital. Just ask the Harvard Business Review. We need to be looking at a much older segment who have built companies in the past. We need to be looking more at women and diverse teams. But We still build this fantasy of this mythical creature that comes with an idea. But I think it also, in putting so much emphasis on the person and not on the execution, we actually also begin to mimic some of the power structures we see in policy, for example, or in politics. There's a politician or a prime minister, and they're the top dog. And everyone measures their importance in the organization with proximity to the person. And I think that we've really struggled with that. So as our organization grows, I've seen employees, but also investors who viewed me as a cult leader be unhappy with having less access, not less access because you don't want to spend time with them, but because the organization grows quickly. Yeah, Success is not about how much time you spend with the CEO. It's about owning an area of work and really excelling in that and seeing that grow. So in a way, we're building an organization that's super unhealthy, For the person who's the CEO, but also for everybody who works in the organization.
1: So, looking ahead, then, what are some of the things you're most excited about in the future of learning or even your own development as an entrepreneur?
0: I'm really excited about obviously natural language processing and generative AI. It's been just something that I get very excited about for a long time. Something I'm personally really invested in at the moment is. Figuring out ways to include people with a limited written language, basically the future of learning and the future of artificial intelligence. What I mean by that is, for example, I am working with an organization called Cambodia Living Arts, and they're really trying to empower Cambodian artists to leverage artificial intelligence. But there aren't a lot of models in their language or in a lot of languages. Also, if you look at a lot of the African languages that have very limited written content, you can't iterate, you can't invent new things on top of the language models that already exist because they aren't really trained. That is an example of a project. And there are several projects happening where some of us are trying to find ways to record more natural language and have it included in models. And luckily the technology can help us do that. What we have to understand is that we used to only talk about the gap between rich and poor, but the gap between those who are included in the technical revolution and those who are not is widening every single day. Because if your language isn't represented in the new large language models, you're exponentially left behind. This is a huge, huge problem and any policymaker should be very concerned about that if you're included in the group who isn't really represented. That's something I'm incredibly excited about. And of course, at Canopy Lab, we're constantly widening the pool of exercises we can do that are generated by artificial intelligence. We already generate a bunch of quizzes and journal exercises. Right now, we're very close to releasing a new tool where we can help empower students to improve their written work before they hand it in. What I mean by that is I always, as a teacher or as an educator, have found it very frustrating that you give the majority of your feedback after a grade, or maybe not at all. You have maybe some students who come and see you for some guidance as they're doing a written work, it could be a master's thesis, and then you give them a grade and very limited feedback, and then it's over and the learning sort of ends. So my thinking was that let's give them more power to own that experience and to get more feedback in the process. So our new tool will enable you to get feedback on your strengths of argument, on your grammar, on your whole sort of essay beforehand, but also will come and estimate a grade before you hand in your work. So you have a chance to see if you wanna improve upon it or not. And that's a part of this sort of my vision in education is that it has to be much more user-centric. We have to take- in
1: real time, yeah. Yeah.
0: What's the incentive to look a lot at that feedback once the grade's already been obtained? That's just not very high, it's human nature. Even though you can learn a lot from this sort of after action reviews, unless you're a professional athlete watching your videos, uh, or, you know, and take, yeah, don't, go back and review it that much. So let's try to give them that feedback in advance and then they can decide if they want to do something about it.
1: I love that as well, because it's the life they live at the moment. They share an image and they get feedback instantly. And that's how they iterate. Listen, Sarah, it's been absolutely amazing to have you in the show. Thank you for sharing as much of your own personal journey as all the amazing work you're doing. I look forward to having you back on the show again and sharing more. So thank you very much for being on.
0: It was good to be here.
2: Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies, from ideation to acceleration and growth, and our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed, and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years, and who knows how many beyond that? So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself.